and reminder of days past. Jeepneys were originally fashioned out of the military jeeps left behind by American troops after the Second World War. They were converted into brightly painted, cheap and cheerful minibuses. But the government's determined to get rid of them now. It's saying the jeepneys are unsafe and responsible for urban smog. Many jeepney drivers have already rejected a government offer to partially subsidize the purchase of new vehicles, saying they still can't afford the switch. A United Nations report says the Taliban's treatment of women and girls in Afghanistan could amount to a crime against humanity. It said restrictions such as barring them from universities were hugely damaging to the whole country. The UN Special Rapporteur for Afghanistan is Richard Bennett. The Taliban's intentional and calculated policy is to repudiate the human rights of women and girls and to erase them from public life. It may amount to the international crime of gender persecution for which the authorities can be held accountable. The cumulative effect of the restrictions on women and girls has a devastating long-term impact on the whole population and it is tantamount to gender apartheid. And finally, the last remaining original member of the U.S. rock band, Leonard Skinner, has died. Gary Rossington was 71. He appeared on all the band's albums and co-wrote their 1974 smash hit, Sweet Home Alabama. Live performances of their rebellious blues rock earned them a particularly strong following in America's southern states. The right-leaning rockers were among bands that took to the stage on the sidelines of the 2016 Republican Convention. The news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.05 in Hong Kong on March the 7th. Prepare yourselves for money talk. I'm Andrew Work, and away we go. China was the big news yesterday for markets in Asia, but across the pond, they seem to be holding their breath, waiting for America's Big Tuesday. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is booked to appear on the C-SPAN daytime show, also known as the U.S. Congress. Rate hikes are expected in the face of an economy and inflation that refused to bow to interest pressures. Markets in Asia were flat on the uninspiring growth expectations announced in China over the weekend, but most of that expectation was largely priced into the markets. In the EU, mining was down and travel and leisure stocks were rising. America reset the trend with stocks that were up just slightly yesterday, with Apple and other tech stocks propping up the bourses with decent gains. Lithium, vital for electric vehicles, is back in the news, with the RAND announcing it has discovered a deposit that may be the world's second biggest ever. Altria, maker of Marlboro cigarettes, will spend $2.8 billion to acquire Enjoy, the only vaping company with six U.S. FDA-approved vaping devices, including the Enjoy A's. And Mondelez is the American owner of Toblerone, and they are messing with the look. Moving part of their production to Slovakia has provoked the invocation of Swiss law, and so it will have to ditch the image of the Swiss Matterhorn on its packaging, and the packaging can't read Swiss chocolate anymore. Instead, it will be a generic mountain, and the packaging will read, established in Switzerland in 1908. 
And the gods of radio guests have smiled on Money Talk today. We have Alex Wong of Alex KY Wong Asset Management joining us, along with Peter Churchhouse, the founder of Portwood Capital. Later, taking a look at your money. Carolyn Wright speaks to one of the graduates of that math genius factory, University of Waterloo. He is Fred Nahn, the co-founder and co-CEO of Bowtie Life Insurance. And they're going to be talking about the government's voluntary health insurance scheme and if it's worth for you to take a look at it. Uh, we're closing strong with a view from Japan with John Barron, the vice chair of research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. If you have questions for our guests, fire them into our email, moneytalk at rthk.hk. And if you want to share your views on the macro or the micro, get us on our Facebook page at Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And is it show me the money? No, it's show me the money talk. Okay, taking a closer look at the headlines, uh, we're going to ask you to watch for data coming out of the U.S. this week, including Jerome Powell's two days of presentations at Congress, specifically the Monetary Policy Report to the Senate Banking Committee on Tuesday, and then the Monetary Policy Report to the House Financial Services Committee on Wednesday. Also, wholesaler inventories and consumer credit reports are out today, uh, and U.S. mortgage applications, ADP employment change, trade balance, and jolts job openings come out on Wednesday. Barry Woods, RTHK's man in D.C., will do an extended turn tomorrow to cover all that turf. More from the weekend output in Beijing. China will create a new agency to regulate and control the flow of data. A new national data bureau will centralize the control of information flow, which right now has a number of administrative bodies. Stay tuned for more on this front. Delegates at the NPC are expected to discuss more on how the government will address the challenges it faces over the coming years. Among them, how to keep economic growth targets amid a declining birth rate. Louise Liu, chief economist at Oxford Economics, explains. The problem about lower, lower growth rate is that you have a problem where you have, you might have a shrinking workforce and shrinking workforce generally reduces output on the economy, but it also increases strains on the government in terms of spending on medical and health resources. So there you have a problem of lower economic output but higher government spending. And that is sort of a double whammy for the economy going forward. With fewer workers, less money goes into the pension system. Lou adds that that's an area where we could see changes ahead. China does have a very fragmented pension system. It has three pillars. One is supported by the government, one is the enterprise pension system, and one is the private pension system. What China has been trying to do is on the private pension system, which so far has been tiny. It's been trying to encourage people to put save, to put um, money into its sort of uh, personal retirement savings accounts. So this has been a relatively um, recent development. So the, the the progress of it has been relatively slow as well. So it remains to be seen if really um, the average uh, Chinese consumer are actually incentivized to put money uh, where they put traditionally investments um, into these retirement savings accounts. Looking to South Korea, inflation has hit its slowest pace in nearly a year. The country's central bank recently said it will remain in a holding pattern as consumer prices ease. Kathleen Oh, Korean economist at the Bank of America, says that the Bank of Korea is the only central bank in the region that can afford to step ahead of the others with doing this. We still have other central banks in the region, such as RBA, who's continuing to hike because of the tight labor market. And the Fed, of course, is continuing to hike with the inflation issue there. But for Korea, we have not so much of a, a tightness in the labor market, nor the inflationary pressure building up. So we can finally afford to hold the rate for a while. 
Altria, the maker of Marlboro cigarettes, has agreed to spend $2.8 billion to acquire Enjoy. Enjoy's tagline is Making Smoking History. This deal includes $500 million in cash tied to FDA approvals of various products. And the company currently has six FDA-approved devices. Altria withdrew from another device maker, Juul, which got into trouble with regulators in lawsuits over accusations that it targeted minors. Just a reminder, vaping is illegal in Hong Kong, although you seem to see it everywhere among people giving up smoking. Emrayan's big deposit of lithium may hold up to 8.5 million tons, making it second only to Chile's big load. It is unclear how quickly it will be able to ramp up productions, and exports may also be hampered by sanctions. Now, last week, Money Talk reported on the Tesla announcement that they were opening their own processing plant in Texas. This is important stuff for the fast-growing electric vehicles market, and bottlenecks in supply were causing some anxiety. But China and Australia are also bringing on production, and EV sales are slowing. So if you bet long on lithium, you might want to reevaluate the shifting landscape. All right, on to the market report. All right, looking at the market, starting with the Dow Jones and the S&P 500, they barely moved yesterday, but a little bit in a positive direction, while the NASDAQ opposite dropped 0.1%. Apple had a little boost from a Goldman Sachs buy rating, and it picked up 2%. It makes up 7% of the value of the S&P 500, so it has a big influence. The TSX uh, dropped 0.3%, with energy and base metals holding the index down. The stock 600 was flat, and the FTSE was again underperforming the region, dropping 0.2%. Mining stocks uh, gave up some of last week's gains, dropping 2.6% as a sector, while travel and leisure led on the upside, rising 1.8%. The French CAC was up 0.3%, and the DAX rose half a percent. The Nikkei, looking at Asia, was up 1.1%, with SoftBank among the best performers, rising 2.7%. The buzz around them this week is their decision to list chipmaker ARM in the U.S., not the U.K., to raise about $8 billion in what could be a $50 billion valuation uh, if you're taking the mid-range of the estimates. The Kospi in Korea continued its upward trend from the end of yesterday's show to finish up 1.2%. Chinese indices were flat, with the local Hang Seng Index up 0.2%, Shanghai down 0.2%, and Shenzhen down 0.1%. And in Australia, the market rose 0.6%, and today we're watching for the latest decision on interest rates from the Reserve Bank of Australia. Looking at commodities, uh, Brent crude was a little wobbly on the NPC and CPPCC outlook on the Chinese economy, but ended up slightly on the day. Natural gas dropped almost 15%. It's been up 50% since February 21st, peaked on March 3rd at $3, and has since then dropped back a bit, but it's been a wild ride for day traders. Gold, silver, and palladium all fell, while copper and platinum made tiny gains. Bond yields were in a holding pattern yesterday, as it seems everyone is waiting for U.S. economic data and Jerome Powell's presentation to Congress today and tomorrow. Uh, Looking at currencies, the pound lost ground against the U.S. dollar, dropping 0.3% on the back of a survey showing that British private sector economic activity fell in January at its fastest rate in two years. The euro and the franc gained slightly while the Canadian loonie held steady. A spate of articles about the persistent weakness of the Canadian dollar came out this week as interest rates are expected to hold steady in the face of rising U.S. interest rates. Uh, The U.S. dollar also gained strength against the Japanese yen, the Chinese yuan, and the Singapore dollars. Having a look at crypto, Bitcoin is down 0.3% in 24-hour trading to $22,400. 
Ethereum has shed 0.5% in the past 24 hours. Only stable coins are holding their value. As in the last seven days, most major coins are down from 2 to 9%. Looking across the region right now, the Australian uh, ASX 200 has uh, opened up down a little bit. And we're looking at the Hang Seng uh, doing a quite a, maybe okay today with the Hang Seng Futures Index showing a 0.2% gain. And those are your markets. All right, and we are taking you to the headlines and to our guests. Uh, we're going to say hello. I said earlier, the uh, the gods of guests have blessed us today, starting with Alex Wong of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Andrew. We're also joined by Peter Churchhouse, founder of Portwood Capital. Morning, Peter. Good morning, Andrew. All right, gentlemen, uh, all eyes on Jerome Powell as he heads off to Congress. Uh, you know, what are your takes on what's what's going to happen there? What uh, what is he going to have in store for us? Well, I think uh, he probably will still maintain a hawkish stance because recent data is actually showing inflation is still a um, little bit hot. So, and I think uh, he probably would um, take a prudent stance against uh, fighting inflation. So, uh, we're likely we will see uh, a more hawkish stance from him. Yep, Peter. Yeah, and th and that's probably likely to be marginally negative short term for emerging markets uh, and particularly here in Asia. The logic thread is uh, is pretty clear. The January uh, jobs data in America was way higher than people expected. And, of course, uh, investors around the world uh, said, well, that bodes badly for high, higher inflation. It suggests that rates are going to stay higher for longer. The U.S. dollar is going to stay stronger for longer. And a high U.S. dollar is not good for emerging markets. And uh, we've seen a small outflow of funds uh, during February as a result of all of this uh, out of emerging markets uh, of, over the last month. So uh, I, I think um, I, I think Alex is right. This uh, this might hawkish stance might be a, a little bit negative for emerging markets short term at least. And is, is this putting the U.S. Uh, I mean, where does this put the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world? I mean, Christine Lagarde was making uh, some comments. She was, she was talking about inflation being a monster they had to hit on the head. So it sounds like she's going to be hawkish for a while. But, you know, we also hear the Korea's maybe easing off. Uh, you know, the Bank of Canada is expected to hold the line and may probably not raise interest rates when they make their announcement on Wednesday. I mean, uh, you know, when you, when you look at the U.S. against the rest of the world, where do they stack up? Well, the U.S. Uh, started the anti-inflation fight way before anybody else. So Europe was late to the party. Uh, but if we look at where we stand right now, the risks of a recession in the U.S., uh, are relatively low, I think a lot of people would suggest. But the risk of recession in Europe is probably somewhat higher. So Europe has a, is in a bit of a difficult position where it's still battling high inflation, but also facing the risk of a, a greater risk of recession than you see in other parts of the developed world. So Europe's perhaps in a slightly more difficult position than countries like Australia and Canada and the U.S., Hmm. Wait, Alex, what do you reckon? Are you, are you uh, equally kind of pessimistic on, on Europe? Yeah, uh, on the economic funds, I agree. Yeah, but uh, for the stock market, actually, Europe, Europe stock markets actually are much better than expected because I think uh, the, they are supported by those luxury goods um, sellers uh, as China reopened the economy. So we are seeing a strong inflows into that sector and actually that carry the French market especially. So I think... Uh, uh, for the economic funds, I think that Europe actually is uh, facing a difficult situation because um, the 
Recession risk actually is higher, and also the inflation actually is uh, is, is is also higher in that region. So uh, we are probably seeing a hawkish ECB for quite some time. Yeah, and also, there, if you yeah. look at European countries, they, they've got because of their high debt levels, they've got less ability to maneuver in terms of injecting physical uh, or fiscal and monetary stimulus to uh, to deal with a slowing economy. China, for example, has uh, heaps of potential uh, to fight any sort of economic slowdown. America has better potential than Europe as well. So, in that sense, uh, Europe is in a slightly worse position. Is, is there any granularity in that? You know, we used to think of Europe as like a healthy north and, and kind of anemic south. But I mean, now I don't even know if we, if we include Britain when we're talking about it. And Britain hasn't looked so great compared to continental Europe. I mean, is there, do you guys have any uh, bright, some spots brighter than others? Well, you're absolutely right. The North, Northern Europe has always been seen as fiscally more responsible uh, than the wayward South. By that, we mean Greece, Italy, uh, uh, France, Spain, and sometimes perhaps even Portugal. So there's been this uh, very clear divide over over 20 or 30 years. And in fact, um, Alex and I were just having a chat about the problems of Greece just before we came mm, on the show. And, sure. and uh, you know, we look at a country like Greece and we look at Italy, we've still got 350-odd billion uh, euros of non-performing loans in the banking system. So, you know, they're, they're really struggling to deal with some of these problems. Mm. Yeah. And Britain? Britain, I, I think Britain uh, has, has uh, created its own problems to a large extent. Uh, a lot of where we see Britain at the moment is, I think, to some extent due to Brexit. And I think their policy, uh, fiscal and monetary policies, haven't been wonderful in the last few years. So I think a lot of what they're seeing right now is self-inflicted, and uh, it's going to be a slow grind out of that. Okay. And, uh, you know, maybe looking back over to this side of the world, um, Alex, you know, we had the MPC and CPCC uh, meetings yesterday. Of course, we discussed mm -hmm. it on yesterday's show, but I think the markets have had a little bit more time to digest it, theoretically, but they don't seem to be moving strongly in either direction in reaction to what they heard over the weekend. Yeah, I think uh, people probably are a little bit disappointed about the growth target. And they are a little bit ex excited on the defense spending target. So uh, we are seeing uh, one particular sector doing well uh, in the in China Asia market, but not in Hong Kong because we do not have much defense stocks in Hong Kong. Yeah. And um, I think uh, uh, they probably are taking a, um, a conservative stance towards uh, investing in China. So we are seeing uh, money inflow into those uh, lowly valued uh, SOEs, uh, especially the telecom sectors, but they are not uh, buying uh, highly valued uh, tech sectors uh, because um, probably they think the eventual upside may be limited and the regulatory risk actually is still high. So uh, we are seeing a very um, conservative stance in, uh, in, in investing in China from the market right now. Yeah. Do, do you reckon that most, I mean, as I said, the markets didn't really move all them. Do, do you think that 5% growth target, it was pretty much priced into the market, wasn't it? We were talking about it last week, like it was a done deal. Yeah, this is a, a realistic target because we probably may still see a very slow uh, property market in China and the manufacturing sector sector will be affected by uh, companies that we, we are relocating their, their, their base into other parts of the world. So uh, we are seeing two major forces in China being constrained. So uh, we're likely we will see uh, a slow growth. So 5% actually is, is, a, is a realistic target and I think uh, people probably already expected that. So we are not seeing too much reactions uh, from the market as a whole, but the people actually are rotating from sectors. Yeah, but I mean, the uh, 
Uh, the you know the problems of the property markets are well documented. Um, I'm wondering, Peter, maybe are, are there other parts of the economy that you're worried about that you think might have some nasty surprises for us? Well, I think very nasty surprises could come out of the local government financing vehicles. Um, clearly, the local governments um, uh, are in a difficult position in many parts of China right now. They rely hugely on land sales and property uh, for for their income, which they then use to fund infrastructure, education, health care, and so on. Uh, well, with the property market in, uh, in, in big problems in China, these local government financing vehicles have been out there raising money in various forms and buying up land. Uh, and, and raising money to do that. And uh, th- th- there is a real danger that these uh, LG uh, local government financing vehicles are going to run into problems uh, servicing that debt at some point. And there's no, no clear indication that the central government will step in and bail these guys out. So that, to me, could be a, a, a hot point for some kind of systemic risk going forward. As you say, we know the private sector and the SOE debt in the real estate sector has been well documented for three or four years now. But this is a new one, which uh, I think is is really a bit of a black hole. We don't know what, how deep it is. Uh, what happens when these when these uh, when these LGFVs, uh, local government financing vehicles, or, or municipal governments? What happens when they run out of money? Like what what falls? Apart, what what are they supposed to pay for? They can't pay for in terms of services to the people or developing infrastructure. Do we do we have an idea? Well, they have to pay, if they have, if they have to pay back these debts to the the public who fund them, and if they can't pay the coupon and they can't pay the uh, repay the debt itself, what's going to happen is that the people who have uh, funded them, often the, the the public in these communities, are going to be very upset, and of course that can be a social problem uh, for for both the, the local governments, the provincial governments, but also the central government. So the likelihood is that the central government will step in at some point if this does come to be a major problem, and figure out some way to do some kind of backstop financing, which they did in the late 90s uh, when uh, uh, a lot of these financing, SOE financing vehicles had major problems and they set up these uh, funding banks which foreigners put some money into and those have just quietly disappeared over the years. Nobody hears about them. They've been absorbed into the central bank's uh, financing system somewhere and I expect we might see a little bit of that uh, with these local government financing vehicles if they show big problems, which I expect we will see going forward. Did anybody, did people get their money back when they put them into these uh, bad debt vehicles? Uh, A lot of the local people did, uh, but a lot of the institutions, uh, particularly SOEs, did not because the government said, well, these SOEs will continue to fund them anyway. Uh, It doesn't matter, but we can't have the local people uh, putting money into these things and not getting repaid. So I think a lot of the local debt to the consumer was repaid uh, over time, uh, but I think the SOEs probably absorbed quite a big hit. But nobody really knows that. That's sitting on balance sheets that you can't really see. Hmm. I, I mean, uh, you know, maybe switching back to Europe, I noticed uh, blacks, you know, China's, these are not the only places where debts are being defaulted on uh, more recently. Blackstone defaulted on uh, payments for a property portfolio in Finland. And I was like a little perplexed by this. I mean, it's not like 
Wow, I was shocked. To be yeah, honest. I mean, Blackstone's I, got I, money. <laughs> I, I was shocked. I mean, Blackstone, uh, they do, defaulted on about 320 million US dollars of about a 500 plus million dollar debt. Uh, and it's in the form of uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities. Uh, they acquired these assets in 2017 in Finland. Uh, and, and, of course, that was pre-COVID. And as COVID came along, uh, these commercial assets uh, have gone down in value. Uh, vacancies have risen. Rents have fallen. Prices have fallen. Interest rates have gone up. So it's a pretty negative scenario. And they looked like they weren't able to refinance uh, the debt. So they've they've defaulted, but so this is not a great sign for European real estate, particularly secondary market real estate. We're even seeing this in London right now, where prime grade A top quality real estate and top quality locations is doing okay. Occupancy are fine, rents are holding up, but secondary property vacancies are growing rapidly, rents are falling rapidly. Huge differentiation, and I think we're going to see some uh, some fallout right across Europe in secondary commercial property. Okay, and and just to get this clear, I don't know if either you have a view on this, but I mean, um, is this a choice that Blackstone has made as a negotiating tactic? Because I mean, you know, wouldn't somebody just say, "Hey, call your dad and get the money," <laughs> call the parent company and pay the bill? I mean, do Alex or Peter, either one of you? I, I think it could well be a tactic because they did ask the um, uh, the lenders uh, to d- delay uh, d- delayed receipt of their, their their funds and so on. But uh, core lenders said no, we want to get repaid, and uh, and and so I, I think there's no short no no question that Blackstone's not short of money. But if this is in a particular small fund, which is owned by uh, you know, a, a small bunch of um, assets holders, it's difficult for Blackstone to fund, bring money in from another fund uh, to uh, pay this one out uh, and would probably do so only at a deep discount or something like that. Okay, guys, that almost takes us to the news. Alex, I want a last word from you. Uh, what else should people look out for this week very quickly? No, of course, uh, the uh, jobs data from the U.S. and tonight's drones uh, uh, power speech. I, of course, these two are probably the focus. And I think uh, probably we would have some short-term negative news uh, coming out from the U.S., Oof, okay, we'll be on the lookout for that. Thanks for the heads up. Alex Wong of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Uh, we also had joining us on the show today, Peter Churchhouse, who is the founder of Portwood Capital and uh, certainly knows his chops on real estate, whether it's in Hong Kong or around the world. And that is a fact. So uh, still to come in Your Money later on in the show, Caroline Wright is going to be speaking to Fred Nan, who is the co-founder and co-CEO of Bowtie Life Insurance. And they are going to be talking about voluntary health insurance schemes set up by the government. Later with a view from Japan to close out the hour, we'll have John Barron, the vice chair of research, Asian Development Bank Institute, and he'll help us uh, finish off. Today, uh, looking at the markets quickly around the region, the Nikkei is the only one up, but the Kospi and the ASX 200 are down. Bitcoin, Ethereum trending down. Your weather, fine and dry. Warm during the day with a maximum temperature of around 24 degrees. And... Having a look at where we are now, looks uh, man look uh, mainly fine for the next couple of days, and quite warm today. Max temperature of 24 degrees. Temperature now 19 degrees Celsius, 51 percent humidity. And now the news with Vicky Wong. 
The chief executive says top Beijing official Xia Baolong has called on Hong Kong to be ready to tackle so-called hidden forces seeking to undermine Hong Kong's social stability. John Lee was speaking to reporters after flying back from Beijing, where he attended the opening session of the National People's Congress. He said Mr Xia, the director of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, reminded him that national security risks still existed in the SAR. We will definitely crack down on any forces trying to undermine national security or breach the peace of Hong Kong society or hurt Hong Kong's overall interests and hold them legally responsible under the law. An international meeting of scientists and ethical experts in London has heard that new rules on gene editing have been introduced in China. The mainland is seeking to become a world leader in gene editing techniques. Scientists believe they could be used to correct many inherited diseases. The BBC's Palab Ghosh reports. Gene editing enables researchers to make precise alterations to a person's DNA at an early embryonic stage. But it's not yet been proven to be safe to use in practice. Chinese authorities have recently introduced stricter rules for the use of the technology, setting out requirements for ethical approval, supervision and inspections. A spokesperson for the Chinese Academy of Science told the conference that the country had accelerated the introduction of new laws on gene editing. A United Nations report says the Taliban's treatment of women and girls in Afghanistan could amount to a crime against humanity. It said restrictions such as barring them from universities were hugely damaging to the whole country. The UN Special Rapporteur for Afghanistan is Richard Bennett. The Taliban's intentional and calculated policy is to repudiate the human rights of women and girls and to erase them from public life. It may amount to the international crime of gender persecution for which the authorities can be held accountable. The cumulative effect of the restrictions on women and girls has a devastating long-term impact on the whole population and it is tantamount to gender apartheid. Opposition parties in Turkey have agreed a joint candidate to compete against President Recep Tayyip Erdogan in elections due in May. He's Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, the 74-year-old leader of the Secular Republican People's Party. The BBC's Danny Eberhard reports. Much is at stake in Turkey's forthcoming presidential and parliamentary elections. Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu will head a disparate anti-Erdogan alliance that's promised to return Turkey to a parliamentary system. In 2018, Turkey switched to the current presidential model, which gave Mr Erdogan sweeping new powers. Opponents accuse him of growing authoritarianism, warning that Turkey risks becoming a dictatorship. Mr Erdogan, whose roots lie in political Islam, has led the country for 20 years. Polls suggest the race will be tight. One month after the catastrophic earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, many aid workers say the devastation remains all but total. One senior Red Cross official said most of the physical and social fabric of the places affected needed to be completely rebuilt. Bagnus Korfixen is with Oxfam in Antakya in southern Turkey. Families and individuals are in need of the most basic items and services, and that's everything from shelter, people having access to proper tents or just a place to stay, access to food and then access to clean water. So we're talking about like the most basic necessities, which is a need right now. 
And a new law to crack down on migrants arriving in Britain in small boats from Europe across the English Channel will be unveiled on Tuesday, with a senior minister saying enough is enough. The British government has been promising to step up action to tackle the issue after the numbers making that the perilous crossing soared to more than 45,000 last year. But refugee groups say government plans to deport migrants and ban them from re-entering the UK if they cross the channel in small boats are unworkable and will leave thousands of people in limbo. RTHK's UK correspondent Gavin Gray told me more about what is expected in the legislation. Basically, these proposed measures will apply to anyone arriving on British shores in a small boat. And of course, most of those are coming across the English Channel. Um, and uh, under this new legislation, those channel migrants, as they're called, would be removed from the UK, banned from future re-entry, and barred from applying for British citizenship. In other words, the moment anyone comes over in a small boat, they would effectively be told, you are not going to get into the UK. The news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Welcome back to Money Talk on RTHK3. I'm Andrew Work, and we have our famous Your Money feature coming up with Carolyn Wright, and then A View from Japan with John Bieren, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. But first in the news, we're still looking at uh, pronouncements out of China, and the mainland authorities have described last year's economic progress as very impressive in the face of a turbulent external financial environment. National Development and Reform Commission says the growth momentum is in line with Premier Li Keqiang's projection of a 5% growth in 2023 and that it has full confidence it can achieve this target. Kelly Yu reports from Beijing. A vice chairman of the NDRC, Zhao Chenxing, told a press conference in Beijing during the outgoing NPC session that the nation's GDP in 2022 had reached a new level. He was commenting on the 3% growth year-on-year to over 120 trillion yuan describing it as equivalent to the annual GDP increase of a medium-sized country. Mr. Zhao said the recovery of people and goods mobility is speeding up, and that other economic metrics have been stable. Against the backdrop of a 40-year high of global inflation, China's prices have been stable. The year-round CPI growth was 2% only. 12.06 million new urban jobs were created, exceeding our target for 2022. GDP, CPI, employment, and international payments are the most important indicators. So if we look at those indicators, China has been very outstanding. His comments come as some analysts voice concern that it may be difficult for the country to reach the projected 5% GDP growth for 2023 as the country emerges from the pandemic. But Mr. Jia said that growth target is in line with current economic momentum, adding that the country will tackle risks related to property, finance and local government debt. Another vice chairman of the state planner, Li Chenning, told the same briefing that consumption is expected to be the main driver of the nation's economic growth this year. He said some major indicators are likely to pick up gradually in the first half of the year, and that the NDRC will introduce policies to boost demand. 
And over in the U.S., the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, is set to talk to lawmakers about monetary policy. During the two-day hearing on Capitol Hill, Mr. Powell is expected to be asked about the central bank's efforts to tame inflation and the possibility of the U.S. falling into recession. The BBC's Samir Hussain reports. Jerome Powell has a difficult task ahead of him. He will need to convince U.S. lawmakers that he and his colleagues are doing everything that they can to rein in inflation. But, but, but he will also need to convince lawmakers that he is not putting the U.S. economy at risk. Now, the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates eight times in the last year. Recent reports show that the rate of inflation may have slowed somewhat, but the overall cost of living is still really high. Now, lawmakers are likely getting an earful from their constituents who say they can barely make ends meet. It is likely this message will be delivered to Mr. Powell more than once. There will also be those on Capitol Hill who will accuse the central bank of being too reckless with interest rate rises, that all these increases could push the country into recession. Now, the reality is that much of the inflationary pressure is residual impact from supply chain disruptions, courtesy of the pandemic. So the Fed really only has so many tools at its disposal. But that's not a message lawmakers will want to hear. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, with more Money Talk action, we are bringing you your money and with Carolyn Wright, and she's going to be taking a look at the Voluntary Health Insurance Scheme. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. Today, I'm looking at something we all need to look after, our health. And I'm joined by Fred Ngang. He is the co-founder and co-CEO of Bowtie Life Insurance, who offer Voluntary Health Insurance Scheme, or VHIS, policies. So, Fred, thank you for joining us. Tell us a little bit about Bowtie. So, Bowtie, we're the Hong Kong first virtual insurance company. Why would joining a VHIS be good for customers? Sure. Let me give you a bit more background, right? Um, the VHIS is, is actually part of a health reform to recalibrate the public and private balance. So if you look at this, uh, the health expenditure and the doctor allocation is about 50-50 between the public and the private hospital. But yet 90% of the patients go to the public hospital. And this resulting in a very, very long waiting time that you might know. And I actually personally had a heart condition before. And I have to line up for the public hospital. And it took me like six months before I can see a doctor. And um, so, so the public health care continues to struggle and which accelerate the privatization of health care and the importance of the health insurance. So VHIS is a medical insurance product that cover hospitalizations and the surgery expenditure. These are the plans that are certified by the government. So the government standardizes all these policy terms, such as the premium transparency, the 20 days calling offer, the prescribed diagnosis, um, diagnostic um, imaging tests, such as a CT scan, and also the tax incentive. So a VHS, VHIS is a scheme that you can join just if you want some health insurance, or it could be an addition to medical insurance you already have. Now, what are the differences there? What benefits can joining a VHIS scheme have if you already have insurance provided, say, by your employer? Yeah, um, well, some of you might have um, a group medical, right? 
uh, but it may not be sufficient. To be honest, usually you don't look at it until you 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 need it. But um, but just like my case, right when I was at her condition, when I look at it, it was actually not sufficient. So it's very common that people buy a medical plan and VHS as a top up policy. So just in case that you need more extra benefit, then you want that to you want to claim your company. Uh, uh, plan first, and then you go to your personal ones. So uh, a lot of people, especially working in the industry, in banking, in financing, in technology, a lot of them use it as a top. But if you don't have any group medical at all, which is the case for some of the the, the professional, if you work as a, a freelancer or slasher, then you might want to buy the medical plan as your core uh, primary uh, health insurance. So, so both options are available there. Now, you've talked a lot already about the, the health benefits you can get in terms of the hospital care. What are the other benefits? There, there are aspects related to tax deductions, aren't there, as well? So, so you know, what are the savings you can make? Um, sure, yeah. So there are tax deduction uh, when you buy franchise. You can actually claim tax deduction up to $8,000 per insured person. So for the premium amount that you paid, uh, but I would say uh, beside the tax, as, which is a very good hook, uh, there's a lot of other benefit. Like as I mentioned, like the transparency, some of the terms, like the calling period, the unknown pre-existing, um, some of these um, features that are very important to customers. In the past, you can't really compare, but now it's all centralized. So again, you can trust the government, you can trust the system that um, uh, some of these terms are, are, are going to be unified. So when you do compare, when you see search, it's a lot easier. Because there are actually almost um, 90 plans out there. There are some regular standard plans and flexi plans. Without this standardization, it's very hard to compare and it's very hard to research. Because for people in this, the younger generation especially, they really want to compare and research before they buy. See, they don't just rely on someone telling them what, how it works. They really want to understand it. So that's why the transparency is very important. I, I think that's a very good point you make there, that, that people do research these things carefully to make yes. sure they're, they're getting what they want and what they think they, they could possibly need in, in future. And I wonder how much, aside from sort of generational change, you're seeing as the changes in the private healthcare sector generally. You talked about, obviously, during the pandemic, waiting times in, in local uh, public hospitals were very long. So, so are more people looking towards private healthcare options? Yeah, yes. Um, so I just looked at the stat before I came, right? Um, so in the last few years, I think it's growing at about 7%. There is uh, about 1 million, more than 1 million VHS policy. Uh, a lot of them are migrating from existing policy, and about uh, 100,000, more than 100,000 uh, new franchise policy every year. And because of the COVID, the health awareness is very high. And uh, as I mentioned, people avoid hospital, public hospital, so they see the need of getting um, uh, more protection, more private healthcare. And 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 last uh, February, right when the fifth wave, co- uh, the COVID fifth wave hit us. We have seen that our VHI sales was up 70% during that month. Wow. And when people work from home, so the only option for them is to buy it online. So these are some of the trends that we see uh, when it happened. And, and, and according to the search data, a lot of people are searching for COVID-related benefits, protections, vaccine, because these are people don't really understand. And during that point when the health awareness is very high, uh, there's a lot of demand for private health care. 
Right. So something you brought up there is is very much looking at what kind of cover you want, you know, whether a COVID vaccination is included or not. So how would someone who's looking into VHIS choose the kind of policy that works for them? Um, yes. Um, so there is standard plan and there is a flexi plan. The standard plan basically is a minimum uh, benefit that is set by the government. The annual limit is about 420000 The flexi plan is basically you enhance the benefit based on the standard. So for us, we have four levels. We have um, the standard, we have uh, 600000 1 million and the Bodai Pink, which is uh, 10 million. So I would suggest uh, you should really compare and research before you buy. People usually look at the benefit. And of course, the premium and, and the brand and the service. Um, right now, because the premium and benefit are transparent, you can always just go online and talk to agents to find out more. But the brand is really just more for the work from mouth. Uh, the servicing, yes, you want to make sure you talk to people, make sure you, 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 uh, you we understand it, uh, you answer the question that you have. But what we have seen is people nowadays do research to really try to understand it before they buy it. And do you uh, do the costs vary for things like people of different ages? That's you know a very common thing for for insurance and health insurance in particular. Yes, yes. Um, so it it vary by so the premium is, is vary by the ages, but it's actually a lot more affordable than affordable than people think. To give you one example, right, uh, age thirty male, right, is actually just one hundred twenty dollars per month. So lots of people think medical insurance is expensive, but it's yeah. actually not. Uh, if you look at it, especially when you are younger and healthier. And is it one of those things that if you buy a policy, you start a policy when you're younger, that that's probably actually beneficial because the pricing stays the same as, as you age or does it still increase? It, it still increases, uh, but you should get health insurance when you are healthy because otherwise you can't really get into the risk pool. So it's very important that because some people think, oh, I buy health insurance when I'm young, I don't need it. But the point is you don't, well, you, you don't want to claim but yeah. it's important that you get into the risk pool earlier. So when you need insurance, you can still get it in, get it. But sometimes it's sad to see that some people have condition already. They may not be able to pass the underwriting tests, so they cannot get insurance. Yeah. So, so you want to get it when you are young and healthy. <laughs> I think that's, that's very good advice to, to get in there early and always, always do your research before you buy any sort of product. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you so much, Fred, for joining me today. That was Fred Ngan, co-founder and co-CEO of Bowtie Life Insurance, uh, t talking to us today about uh, helping keep yourself healthy. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Hey, this is Money Talk, and it is time for The View from Japan. We're saying konnichiwa to our main man in Japan. He is John Bjorn, the Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Good morning, John. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, let's, let's get into it. So, um, John, a little something personal. I'm originally from Canada. When Canada signed their big free trade agreement with the United States, it was transformational for Canada. But I'm not sure anybody in the United States even noticed at the time. Um, well, I'm sure some people did, but not many. Um, you know, a lot of the talk this week is about the Korea-Japan rapprochement. We talked about it on yesterday's show with our view from Korea. But we want to get the view from Japan. Um, is, this, is this, you know, they're talking about resuming trade talks, resolving WTO disputes. Um, what is the take from the Japanese side? Is this something people in Japan have on their radar? 
Yes, absolutely. I think uh, it's a very important story to come out this week, and I think that you know, as we as we know, trade is under severe pressure at the moment, and anything that can improve um, both multilateral and bilateral trade um, agreements is, is to be welcome. So I think that developments that we've seen uh, in the past week will help to um, improve those uh, trade developments and negotiations, particularly in key sectors. Um, I'm, I'm thinking really here about uh, semiconductor, electronics, and also uh, auto as well. Okay, and that, that's, that's, I mean, politicians are doing it because it'll be popular with the Japanese public? Well, I think that um, the reason that it's being done is to resolve a, a, a long-running um, you know, issue in, in the political sphere. And I think that um, the benefits in terms of uh, the economic benefits, I should say, um, is something that the public will definitely be uh, very glad about. Okay. And, and I mean, are they, are they desperate for those right now? I mean, how's, how's the labor market? How's inflation? You know, what, what are we looking at here? Yeah, well, just linking to what we talked about, uh, manufacturing and the external sector is, is something that is under pressure in Japan and all, other economies as well. Um, so I think that a lot of the demand and a lot of the economic activity that we're seeing in Japan is really driven by domestic demand rather than external um, so, um, you know, I think that anything that can help to enhance uh, the external side is, is to be of, of benefit. Um, in terms of inflation, as you, as you know, inflation is elevated at the moment. Um, I think that the figures for February will be somewhat lower than in January, but um, there still remains some pressure on core inflation and some uncertainty in the outlook for inflation, I would say. And this, of course, makes uh, policymaking difficult for the central bank. Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, Japan was the land that inflation forgot until it didn't. And <laughs> now now it's back. I mean, uh, I mean, are, are people coping with it OK? I mean, you, you hear about stories in some places where I know in Canada it was lettuce and uh, some markets it was, you know, uh, the Philippines, eggs. I mean, is there something in particular that Japanese people are feeling the pinch on when it comes to inflation? Well, I think uh, food and energy price uh, inflation has been severe. Um, mm. And this is really fueling the inflation that we're seeing at the moment. Um, but the, the real question is whether these so-called cost push pressures, so pr pressures that are coming from outside, are really going to be sustainable over the longer term. Um, and this, this is why um, there's some uncertainty in the, in, in the inflation outlook, as well as that, of course, the base effects that uh, go into the calculation of inflation will eventually fall out uh, sometime around the summer. So we do expect some uh, lower inflation uh, throughout the course of 2023. Okay, and of course, the, the value of the yen uh, impacts on inflation in Japan, being a big, big importing nation, especially for things like energy, which you mentioned. And I know you've, you've got a Bank of Japan policy rate decision Coming up on Friday, uh, you know the bank. We've, we've talked yeah. a bit on this show about the new Bank of Japan governor. What what are you, what is your take on what's coming down the pipe in terms of uh, interest rates in Japan that'll impact on on all the all the above? Yes, well, the dollar yen has been strongly affected by external factors. I would say throughout the course of 2022, as well as that into 2023. Um, so the very wide differential between U.S. and Japanese monetary policy rates largely drove this depreciating effect on the yen during 2022. And we have seen in recent, in the last month, actually, uh, a further depreciation of the yen. 
due to persistent inflation in the U.S., which has increased expectations of longer-than-expected tightening by the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve. Um, so what does it mean for monetary policy in Japan? I think, you know, the exchange rate is something that is not targeted, of course, by the Bank of Japan. They will look at how inflation is expected to um, develop over the, over the basically, the medium term. Um, and while inflation is elevated, it still remains within the bounds of, of the target rate of 2%, I would say, over the course of the year. So this makes it very difficult um, to expect anything dramatic happening in the next meeting. Okay. And how is that, how is that impacting on, for example, the t- tourism to Japan? Are, are people outside Japan getting the message about, about inflation and the, and, the, and the price of the yen, or are they just coming regardless? Well, the exchange rate is a, is a key factor, which is actually um, encouraging tourism. The yen is still cheap relative to historical levels. Um, so there is an increase in tourism, of course, and this is a, a strong factor which is helping the labor market, particularly in the service sector. Um, and, of course, one of the side effects of increased tourism will be an appreciating effect on, on the yen. So there will be an increased demand for yen and an effect on the price of yen as a result of that. So there is certainly um, some growth in tourism numbers, um, which is helping uh, employment in the service sector. And as, as a result of that, it, it is having an appreciating effect on the yen to some degree. Hmm. And I mean, tour, tourism is a fun stuff, uh, but uh, defense, you know, defense spending is, is uh, the not so fun stuff, a little more serious. We saw that China is planning a big ramping up in their defense spending. Uh, and I'm wondering, uh, you know, how, how is Japan reacting to that? Yes, I mean, not only in Japan, but in many other countries, there are uh, concerns as regards the geopolitical tensions, which is really um, motivating this drive for increased spend on defense. I think the issue in Japan is how to finance that increased spending. Um, and largely, it seems to be, anyway, uh, mooted towards uh, increased taxation, particularly on corporates. And, you know, that would have some implications on the extent to which there would be a likelihood of wage negotiations having the desired effect. So, you know, if companies are being taxed uh, more than they would like to fund, uh, you know, d- defence spending, then there may be a less of a likelihood to push through on, on uh, wage increases, which are crucial to you know, get out of this deflationary cycle that we see in Japan, that we have seen over many years. Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting to see what's happening in Japan, in particular in the defense sector. I saw they were taking F-18 jets and adding up to three drones that would operate independently of the pilot and fly around with them. And I thought, you know, that, and I guess if they tell the Japanese people they're raising taxes to build giant mecha suit armor, I mean, I don't think they'd have a problem with that at all. That <laughs> could be a move. Um, we've got a, we've got a little more a little more time here. Um, I've been I've been looking at uh, decarbonization of uh, economies around the world, and I'm wondering where the Japanese are on that. Are, are they are they looking to replace fossil fuels, which of course for them are a costly import? Yeah, absolutely. I think that you know recent events have highlighted the vulnerability of economies that are heavily dependent on fossil fuel imports, including Japan. Um, and there's a, a big drive to diversify the energy supply uh, network as a result of that. So there are a number of options being considered by the government at the moment, including nuclear um, and including developments with hydrogen and ammonia, for example, and cooperative agreements 
um, with regard to uh, hydrogen and ammonia uh, with other economies in Asia and as well as that Australia. Um, I think that the shift to decarbonisation faces the same challenges uh, across the world, which is how to finance it. Um, I think there are limited resources by governments to, to really uh, finance this solely. So there, it's imperative really to uh, leverage the private sector to uh, get involved in this financing. And that is a key issue uh, in Japan, I think, how to uh, leverage private sector finance from government policy on this issue. Yeah, I mean, I guess part of decarbonizing the economy is uh, getting cleaner air for people, uh, including kids. Uh, we got a, we got about a list in a minute here, but could you just tell us what's going on? I hear there's some measures to boost Japan's birth rate. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, one of the problems with the effectiveness of policy, particularly monetary policy in Japan, is uh, the, the very uh, the demographic problem and the low birth rate. Um, and there are a number of measures uh, being introduced by the government to address that, to address this demographic problem, such as further uh, economic support for, for uh, newborn children, um, improvements in childcare services, and as well as that, changing in, in work practices and working styles to, to facilitate um, an increase in the birth rate. And okay. this would, of course, help not only with productivity, employment, um, but also uh, tax revenues. Uh, over the longer term. All right. Well, that'll uh, that's all great. That's a really great uh, comprehensive view of what's happening in Japan from John Barron, Vice Chair of Research at the Asia Development Bank Institute. Thank you very much for bringing all that to us. Um, we're going to have a quick look across the region, including, of course, the Nikkei 225 index, which is uh, trending upwards right now up 0.16%. The Kospi and the ASX, however, are on the down. Thanks to our producer and presenter, Carolyn Wright, and sound engineer, Andy Kwok. Uh, tomorrow's show, James Ross will be joined by Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent, and Stuart Aldcroft from the Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant. Stay tuned for Back Chat with uh, Jim Gould and Mike Rouse talking about geriatric taxi drivers. And weather fine and dry, max temperature of 24 degrees, and that has been Money Talk.